The New York Times slams everyone on the right as a gateway to the alt-right. Pinterest allegedly cracks down on pro-lifers. And Trump's tariffs may be turning up roses. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. I swear, I leave for a Jewish holiday, and every single time I leave for a Jewish holiday, the New York Times attacks me. I don't know what it is about Jewish holidays in the New York Times. I mean, I have an indicator, but nonetheless, we'll get to that in just one second. First, some things in life are just uncomfortable to talk about. Sex is one of those things, but sex is also one of the more important things in life, especially within the context of a healthy marriage. Studies show that 70% of dudes who experience erectile dysfunction don't actually get treated for it for just that reason. It's pretty awkward to discuss, but sometimes things just don't work the way they are supposed to. That's not something to be ashamed about, just like other health problems aren't anything to be ashamed about. That's where our friends at Roman come in. Thankfully, Roman created an easy way to get checked out by a doctor and get treated for ED online. With Roman, you can get medical care for ED, if appropriate, from the comfort and privacy of your own home. You can handle everything online in a convenient, discreet manner. Getting started is simple. Just go to GetRoman.com Ben and complete an online visit. If the doctor decides that treatment would be appropriate, they can then prescribe genuine medication that can be delivered in discreet packaging direct to your door with free two-day shipping. Dudes, go talk to the doctor. ED can be tough to tackle, but it's really important to get it checked out. Just like any other health problem, just go get it checked out right now. Go to GetRoman.com Ben. Get a free online visit and free two-day shipping. That is GetRoman.com Ben for a free visit to get started. That's GetRoman.com Ben. Okay, so as I say, I leave for a Jewish holiday. And every time I do, all hell breaks loose. I remember a couple of years ago, there's a Jewish holiday. And I come back from the Jewish holiday, and there's been an entire op-ed in the New York Times about how I'm a terrible person. And then I left, I think just last year for a Jewish holiday, and I come back and there's a New York Times article about how the, about how we here at Daily Wire are bad. It's, it's pretty much like every Jewish holiday. Like they schedule it out that way so that I have a really, really wonderful time coming back from the Jewish holiday, opening my computer and seeing what stupidity has taken place. Well, this week's stupidity comes courtesy of the New York Times yet again. Apparently there was an article and the article, I guess, was on the cover of the New York Times Sunday edition. On, so I guess it was, it was a Saturday article online. It was a Sunday edition front page article on Sunday. And the article was titled The Making of a YouTube Radical. And it was basically a story about a rando. The rando's, the rando's name is Caleb Kane. And it's all about his supposed radicalization. Now, what's hilarious about the article is that the article talks about him being, quote unquote, radicalized. He was never a member of the alt-right. He wasn't a white supremacist. He considered himself a tradcon, meaning a traditional conservative, until he moved over to the left. So in other words, he became a conservative by listening to YouTube videos, and they called him a YouTube radical. The graphic that they put up was a bunch of different kind of images of different YouTube videos, but they lumped together a bunch of YouTube videos that are completely dissimilar. So there is a, a picture of me there. I'm not mentioned one time in the entire article, by the way. There's a picture of me and then there's pictures of people like Stefan Molyneux, who has some borderline white supremacist race theories, the very mildest, that's the mildest way to, discover, to, to, to describe it. You have people like Alex Jones, you have people like Paul Joseph Watson, you have folks like Milo Yiannopoulos, and then you have like Milton Friedman was in this mashup. Like Mil Milton Friedman, so Milton Friedman and I are in the same category as Milo Yiannopoulos and like Richard Spencer, according to this particular this particular graphic on the cover of the New York Times. And the article itself is incredibly stupid. The article itself is basically about how he watched some videos and it led him to other videos, which led him to other videos, which led him to become a trad con. And then people were upset at him becoming a trad con. So then he became not a trad con anymore. That's the entire article. It's thousands of words long, thousands of words. So a couple of things to note. Number one, there's a full on campaign by the left media at this point from the Washington Post to the New York Times from NBC to Media Matters. And I count Media Matters as part of the left media infrastructure. Any publication that calls Media Matters a watchdog group, you can tell, is on the side of Media Matters. There is this overt effort now on the part of all of these publications to suggest that the tech companies are basically leading people down the rabbit hole of alt-right white supremacist content by even allowing mainstream conservative content. That's the goal here, is to lump in everybody who's a mainstream conservative with people who are alt-right and then suggest that if you watch mainstream conservative content, then inevitably you will be led down this rabbit hole. Now, this is absurd and bizarre. There are legitimately hundreds of thousands of people who listen to this show every day who are not even on the political right. There are hundreds of thousands of people who are on the political right and believe that the alt-right is evil, just as I do. But according to the New York Times and the Washington Post and all of these other outlets, basically, if you're on the right, 
you're going to slide gradually into white supremacism so long as you engage on YouTube. Now, the reason they are directing this at YouTube is because they are hoping to use YouTube in order to quash conservative viewpoints. They understand that there are certain shared fora where people post their views, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, all the rest of those, Pinterest. And then what they're hoping to do, they understand conservatives aren't going to stop talking. So what they hope to do is make conservative speech so ridiculously outside the Overton window that all of these shared platforms have to shut it down. And they're hoping to do this in advance of the 2020 election. The timing is not a mistake here. It is not a coincidence here. Ever since the left decided that Hillary Clinton had illegitimately lost the 2016 election and that she really won, ever since that, they've been looking for a scapegoat. And the scapegoat that is the most convenient for them are the tech companies. And by attacking the tech companies, what the left hopes to do is cause the tech companies to curb the content they allow on their platforms in advance of 2020. So the argument they are making is that the tech platforms didn't do enough to shut down the nefarious Ruskies, and therefore, they have to shut down everybody on the right in advance of 2020, or at least curb their reach, or at least elevate quote-unquote authoritative voices. So here's what this New York Times idiotic piece says. They say, Caleb Kane pulled a Glock pistol from his waistband, took out the magazine, and casually tossed both onto the kitchen counter. I bought it the day after I got death threats, he said. The threats, Mr. Kane explained, came from right-wing trolls in response to a video he had posted on YouTube a few days earlier. In the video, he told the story of how, as a liberal college dropout, struggling to find his place in the world, he had gotten sucked into a vortex of far-right politics on YouTube. I fell down the alt-right rabbit hole, he said in the video. So a couple of things right off the bat. Number one, he didn't actually, he was so crazily right-wing, he didn't even own a gun until he became a leftist again and then talked about it on YouTube. Mr. Kane, 26, recently swore off the alt-right nearly five years after discovering it and has become a vocal critic of the movement. Well, welcome, sir. Welcome. Enjoy the party. You're a little late, pal. He is scarred by his experience of being radicalized by what he calls a decentralized cult of far-right YouTube personalities who convinced him that Western civilization was under threat from Muslim immigrants and cultural Marxists, that innate IQ differences explained racial disparities, and that feminism was a dangerous ideology. Now, I love how he lumps all of those things together. So if you say that third-wave feminism is a dangerous ideology, which it is, apparently that is in the same box as believing that innate IQ differences are entirely to blame for racial disparities. Apparently, they're all the same. So you see even here what the New York Times is doing. They're taking mainstream conservative ideas, like third-wave feminism is a bad idea and dangerous for a civilization, and they're lumping that together with the racist idea that all disparities are attributable to innate biological difference between people in different racial groups. And they're just lumping those two together, like that's not a problem. I just kept falling deeper and deeper into this, and it appealed to me because it made me feel a sense of belonging. He said, I was brainwashed. Now, why in the world is this guy, Mr. Kane, Caleb Kane, why is he the center of a New York Times front page story? Because it supports the narrative. It's a piece of anecdotal data that supports the left-wing narrative that everybody who's in the alt-right originally started as a member of the mainstream conservative movement and then was radicalized by YouTube. And this is why we have to pressure YouTube into shutting down Steven Crowder or shutting down Ben Shapiro or shutting down Glenn Beck or shutting down Mark Levin or shutting down anybody who's on the right. Over years of reporting on internet culture, says this New York Times reporter, I've heard countless versions of Mr. Kane's story. An aimless young man, usually white, frequently interested in video games, visits YouTube looking for direction or distraction and is seduced by a community of far-right creators. Some young men discover far-right videos by accident while others seek them out. Some travel all the way to neo-Nazism while others stop at milder forms of bigotry. The common thread in many of these stories is YouTube and its recommendation algorithm. Well, there's another common thread, which is that when dispossessed young men go looking for content that appeals to them, they might be able to find the content that appeals to them because they are dispossessed young men. In other words, these are human beings who are created with the capacity for free will. And this means they get to choose which videos they access and which videos they believe. But according to YouTube, if you watch a video of me ripping the alt-right, which is like every other video of me online, if you watch a video of me ripping the alt-right, this inevitably leads you to the alt-right. This is how you end up at the idiotic media coverage of a couple weeks ago where the media tried to blame me for an attack on a synagogue, which is the most asinine contention I could possibly imagine. But the New York Times continues. The radicalization of young men is driven by a complex stew of emotional, economic, and political elements many have nothing to do with social media. But, and it's the but that matters here, critics and independent researchers say YouTube has inadvertently created a dangerous on-ramp to extremism by combining two things, a business model that rewards provocative videos with exposure and advertising dollars, and an algorithm that guides users down personalized paths meant to keep them glued to their screens. Ah, it's YouTube's fault. It's YouTube's fault. Tristan Harris, former design ethicist at Google. By the way, if you are a design ethicist, 
This should answer the question as to whether these big tech companies are designing the algorithms with certain values in mind. They've been saying all along, no, 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 they're just following the traffic. They actually had a position called a design ethicist at Google. Tristan Harris says, if I'm YouTube and I want you to watch more, I'm always going to steer you toward crazy town. Weird that no one on the left has ever suggested that YouTube should maybe disassociate from, say, the Young Turks on the left. No one has ever suggested that YouTube disassociate from far left views. Weird. Odd. Because it turns out that some people have been radicalized by those sorts of videos as well. In recent years, social media platforms have grappled with the growth of extremism on their services, says the New York Times. Many platforms have barred a handful of far-right influencers and conspiracy theorists, including Alex Jones of, of Infowars, and tech companies have taken steps to limit the spread of political misinformation. YouTube, whose rules prohibit hate speech and harassment, took a more laissez-faire approach to enforcement for years. And this is where the New York Times is trying to push. The New York Times is trying to push by saying that this laissez-faire approach has been a complete failure and is causing people to be radicalized because radicalization never happened before the YouTube algorithm and because YouTube has the temerity to leave conservative views on their platform. What's funny about this is they're really not blaming YouTube's algorithm. In the end, this article, as you will see, does not blame YouTube's algorithm and suggest that the algorithm needs to be changed so that it doesn't benefit some of the fringe views. Instead, they basically argue that YouTube should crack down on mainstream conservative views because there's no difference between mainstream conservatism and far-right, alt-right views. We'll get to more of that in just one second. First, we need to talk about your freedoms. They are, in fact, in danger. You hear me talk all the time on the show about the growing attacks on religious freedom and freedom of speech. You can see today's show is all about the attack on the principled nature of freedom of speech. And we've talked repeatedly on the show about the attacks on religious freedom that come as a consequence of the radical growth of government. Well, now's a great time to tell people like Baronel Stutzman, a small business owner, floral artist, floral artist, and grandmother who was sued by her state's government and the ACLU for simply declining to create custom floral art celebrating an event that conflicted with her Christian beliefs. We had Baronel on our radio show last week. She could lose her business, her home, and her life savings if she loses. This is why Alliance Defending Freedom exists. ADF provides free legal services to Baronel and others whose freedoms are under assault. ADF will ask the U.S. Supreme Court to hear her case, but ADF cannot do that without your help because ADF relies on donations to fight for your freedom. If this attack can happen to someone like Baronel, it can happen to somebody like you as well. The left does not care about basic free speech standards. Not liberals, the left. Will you fight for Baronel and protect your freedom? Please give generously. All donations are, in fact, tax deductible. And if you donate 75 bucks and above, you'll receive an exclusive free speech shirt. Go to adflegal.org slash Ben to donate right now. I love ADF. They do amazing work. They really are a great organization. Go check them out right now. adflegal.org slash Ben. That's adflegal.org slash Ben. When you give 75 bucks or above, you get an exclusive free speech shirt. That's adflegal.org slash Ben. Okay, so this New York Times piece, which again, lumps in everybody on the right, continues. With 2 billion monthly active users uploading more than 500 hours of video every minute, YouTube's traffic is estimated to be the second highest of any website behind only Google.com. According to Pew Research Center, 94% of Americans aged 18 to 24 use YouTube, a higher percentage than for any other online service. Like many other Silicon Valley companies, YouTube is outwardly liberal in its corporate policies. It, flo it sponsors floats at LGBT pride parades. Its chief executive endorsed Hillary Clinton. In reality, YouTube has been a godsend for hyperpartisans on all sides. Weird. Weird that you say this and then the entire article is about the right. Odd. Very odd. I can't imagine why the New York Times would do that. And then they say, I, I love this. It has also been a useful recruiting tool for far-right extremist groups. Bellingcat, an investigative news site, analyzed messages from far-right chat rooms and found that YouTube was cited as the most frequent cause of members red-pilling, an internet slang term for converting to far-right beliefs. Well, since you just said that 94% of people aged 18 to 24 watch YouTube, I can imagine that's true. This is like saying, guess what helps people change their viewpoint? television. Ooh, television. It's the television's fault. A European research group, Voxpol, conducted a separate analysis of 30,000 Twitter accounts affiliated with the alt-right. It found the accounts linked to YouTube more often than to any other site because it's the most linked site on the internet. That would probably be it. Becca Lewis, who runs a garbage study for data and society, a study that was so dumb that they basically had to retract their own findings. Okay, this study basically suggested a seven degrees of separation. It was, it was six degrees of Kevin Bacon, but with politics. It was basically like, okay, so Dave Rubin interviewed me, and I have interviewed Stephen Crowder, and Stephen Crowder has interviewed Stefan Molyneux. Therefore, Dave Rubin, and Dave Rubin also once interviewed, like, Mike Gatto, the Democratic Assemblyman. Therefore, Mike Gatto is linked to Stefan Molyneux. They're all the same. It's, it's just, it's ridiculous. That was her idiotic study. 
She says YouTube has been able to fly under the radar because until recently, no one thought of it as a place where radicalization is happening. But it's where young people are getting their information and entertainment. It's a space where creators are broadcasting political content that, at times, is overtly white supremacist. Okay, then the article gets back to this, this Mr. Kane, this Caleb Kane, who's a very, very important human. I visited Mr. Kane in West Virginia after seeing his YouTube video denouncing the far right. We spent hours discussing his radicalization. To back up his recollections, he downloaded and sent me his entire YouTube history, a log of more than 12,000 videos and more than 2,500 search queries dating to 2015. Okay, right there, they should have ended the article. Okay, if you've watched more than 12,000 videos and more than 2,500 search queries on YouTube dating back to 2015, you're spending a lot of time on YouTube. There may be some other issues with you. And also, is every single one of those videos to blame? Because you know what one of the videos he watched was? Jimmy Kimmel. Probably Jimmy Kimmel is to blame. These interviews and data points form a picture of a disillusioned young man, an internet-savvy group of right-wing reactionaries, and a powerful algorithm that learns to connect the two. It suggests that YouTube may have played a role in steering Mr. Kane and other young men like him toward the far-right fringes. It also suggested that in time, YouTube is capable of steering them in very different directions. Okay, well, now you really don't have a point of your article, right? So you're saying that YouTube could direct you to the far right. Also, it could direct you to the left, which means you're an independent human with the capacity to click on things. Congratulations. And they talk about that, and then they have a chart. It shows the number of political videos that this guy watched each month. It says the right-wing content Mr. Kane viewed in 2015 and 2016 often consisted of videos by Stefan Molyneux with titles like Social Justice Warriors Always Lie and The Global Warming Hoax. And then it says, Mr. Kane also watched many videos by members of the so-called intellectual dark web. That would be a group in which I'm involved. Like the popular comedian Joe Rogan and the political commentator Dave Rubin. It's Joe Rogan's fault. It's Joe's fault. Amazing. It's amazing. So he watches a video by Stefan Molyneux and a video by Joe Rogan. It's Joe Rogan's fault. Clearly. During 2017, Kane began watching more videos from left-wing channels. Oh, amazing. So um, then why is this a story? I'm confused. Why is this a front page story with a graphic of me? Uh, I'm, I'm just a little confused. Also, I'm confused why this guy, Caleb Kane, is an important human because he made a video. Like, welcome to the world where everybody makes videos. From an early age, Mr. Kane was fascinated by internet culture, says the New York Times. As a teenager, he browsed 4chan, the lawless message board. Okay, well, that would be a pretty good indicator that the guy was ripe for radicalization already by the time he was a teenager. 4chan is a lot more radical than YouTube in terms of general content. He played online games with his friends, devoured videos of intellectuals debating charged topics like the existence of God. Well, clearly that's a problem. The internet was an escape. Mr. King grew up in post-industrial Appalachia, was raised by his conservative Christian grandparents. He was smart, but shy and socially awkward. He went to community college, but dropped out after three semesters. Broken, depressed, he resolved to get his act together. He began looking for help in the same place he looked for everything, YouTube. One day in late 2014, YouTube recommended a self-help video by Stefan Molyneux, a Canadian talk show host and self-styled philosopher. Mr. Molyneux, who describes himself as an anarcho-capitalist, had a political agenda. He was a men's right advocate who said that feminism was a form of socialism and that progressive gender politics were holding young men back. He offered a conservative commentary on pop culture and current events, explaining why Disney's Frozen was an allegory about female vanity or why the fatal shooting of an unarmed black teenager by a white police officer was proof of the dangers of rap culture. Mr. Kane was a liberal who cared about social justice, worried about wealth inequality, and believed in climate change. But he found Mr. Molyneux's diatribes fascinating even when they disagreed. And then apparently... He started watching a lot of Molyneux videos. He watched some Paul Joseph Watson. And then he watched a lot of videos on feminism. And then he watched some racist videos, but he never actually became racist. Okay, this is, this is the part that's hilarious. So he says that he never became an actual racist. He says, these people weren't all shouty demagogues. They were entertainers building their audience with satirical skits, debates, and interviews with like-minded creators. These creators were active on Facebook and Twitter, too, but YouTube was their headquarters, the place where they could earn a living by hawking merchandise and getting a cut of the money spent on advertisements that accompanied their videos. And then he says that he, he felt alienated and he started being programmed by the algorithm to watch particular other ads. The, the, here's the best part. Okay, so finally you get to the point of all of this. He is asked whether, in fact, he ever turned into a racist after watching all this stuff. Quote, Mr. Kane never bought into the right's most extreme views, the far right's most extreme views, like Holocaust denial or the need for a white ethnostate. Still, far right ideology bled into his daily life. He began referring to himself as a tradcon, a traditional conservative committed to old fashioned gender norms. He dated an evangelical Christian woman and he fought with his liberal friends. It was kind of sad, said Zelda Waite, a friend of Mr. Kane's from high school. I was just like, wow, what happened? How did you get this way? I love that for the New York Times, 
people ask questions like, what happened? How did you get this way? Because you date an evangelical Christian woman and because you fight with your liberal friends. So if you're not a liberal and you date a conservative, obviously there is something wrong with you. And then they focus in on Molyneux a lot. I mean, this article is largely about Stefan Molyneux. But again, I'm confused as to why it is, why it is that this particular person is being profiled when he was never sucked into Stefan Molyneux's kind of alt-right worldview. And then, I love this, in 2018, nearly four years after Mr. Kane had begun watching right-wing YouTube videos, a new kind of video began appearing in his recommendations. These videos were made by left-wing creators, but they mimicked the aesthetics of right-wing YouTube. One video was a debate about immigration between Ms. Southern, Lauren Southern, and Stephen Bunnell, a liberal YouTuber known as Destiny. Kane watched the video to cheer on Southern, but Mr. Bunnell was a better debater, and Mr. Kane reluctantly declared him the winner. Mr. Kane also found videos by Natalie Wynn, a former academic philosopher who goes by the name ContraPoints. Ms. Wynn wore elaborate costumes and did drag-style performances in which she explained why Western culture wasn't under attack from immigrants or why race was a social construct. And then it talks about how wonderfully funny and engaging all of these people are on the right. And then he says, well, he became left-wing. Oh, well, so it's a happy story. So this is a happy story in the end. And then he came out and he said that he didn't like all of the stuff that he had watched before and then people were mean to him. The New York Times spends, I kid you not, several thousand words on this story. And they have pictures, again, of Milton Friedman and me alongside pictures of actual alt-right racists who I've spent many years ripping. Okay, the goal of the New York Times story is obvious. Kane's story is not all that interesting. There's nothing there. So the question is, why did the New York Times dedicate this much space to it? The reason the New York Times dedicated this much space to it is because this is part of a hard push by the left in advance of the 2020 election to silence right-wing views. That's what this is. That is why they're lumping in everybody on the right. That's why they are suggesting that YouTube's algorithm, not that people watch my videos and that YouTube's algorithm wrongly directs them to alt-right videos, a proposition with which I would generally agree, but the idea is that my videos should not be promoted and Crowder's videos should not be promoted and anybody else who's on the right, their videos should not be promoted, like mainstream right-wing figures, their videos should not be promoted. Jordan Peterson shouldn't be promoted. Joe Rogan shouldn't be promoted. That's the goal of the New York Times. Shut down debate. This is from your free press. Delightful, folks. I have some more evidence of this in just a second. First, this Father's Day, give Dad a gift packed with the Omaha Steaks he craves. Listen, there's nothing better for Father's Day than the meats. Go to omahasteaks.com, enter code Shapiro in the search bar, and you get 74% off the Father's Day steak fix gift package. It's something that he'll truly enjoy. Don't get him another pair of socks. Instead, get him a bucket full of meat. Okay, listen to this deal. A $235 value, now for only $59.99. Order now, you get two filet mignons, two top sirloins, two pork chops, four Omaha steaks burgers, four gourmet jumbo franks, four chicken fried steaks, all beef meatballs, four chicken breasts, four caramel apple tartlets, a package of Omaha steaks signature seasoning, and you get four extra Omaha steaks burgers for free. Okay, you get all of that for like $59.99. Give that amazing package as a gift for dad or stock up for the incredible summer grilling, all at 74% off. Again, order now, you can get that exclusive Omaha steaks Father's Day Steak Fix Package, valued at 235 bucks for just $59.99. Just go to omahasteaks.com, type code Shapiro into the search bar. Don't wait, the offer ends soon. Go to omahasteaks.com, type Shapiro into the search bar to get the Father's Day Steak Fix Package today. I mean, that is one hell of a deal. Go check them out right now. I have lots of friends who've tried Omaha Steaks. They say they are the best in the business. Go check them out, omahasteaks.com, and type Shapiro into the search bar to get that Father's Day Steak Fix Package right now. Okay, so it's not just this New York Times piece. This asinine New York Times piece about a guy who was a liberal who then watched a lot of YouTube videos and considered himself a traditional conservative until he went back to being a mild-mannered, good liberal. Right? It's, that, that's not what the New York Times piece is about. What the New York Times piece is about is the evils of the right and how the right will suck you in with their nefarious videos on the YouTubes and really how YouTube should shut this thing down. And YouTube is already eager to please. This is true for, for all of the tech companies. YouTube is, is eager to please. They, they are looking to avoid scrutiny by left-wingers who continue to blame them for all of the ills in the world. And it's not just YouTube, it's also Pinterest. So Pinterest is apparently owned by Google. James O'Keefe just got a whistleblower from Pinterest to talk about how they are silencing particular voices on Pinterest. One of the voices that they are silencing on Pinterest is, the, is Live Action and Lila Rose. According to a new project by Project Veritas, this is Daily Wire reporting, it presents a series of accusations of political and ideological bias against conservatives, Christians, and pro-lifers behind the scenes at Pinterest, a social media platform with some 300 million active monthly users. 
Since the report was first released, Pinterest reportedly has taken action concerning one of the allegations in a video that includes testimony from a whistleblower who works for Pinterest and whose identity is concealed in the video. O'Keefe presents internal documents provided by the whistleblower showing what appear to be various means of censoring content, including a porn site block list that includes liveaction.org, which is a pro-life site run by Lila Rose. So in other words, if you are against abortion, they listed you on the porn site block list so that your content could not appear. Some of the other content that was censored by the site was content from yours truly. Here is James O'Keefe talking about it in a video from Project Veritas. The Pinterest insider also saw how, quote, white supremacist, unquote, content, like Ben Shapiro's commentary, for instance, goes from identified to censored. This is if Ifioma or Ify Ozoma um, calling Ben Shapiro a white supremacist. Some would say that, well, that's just her giving her opinion on a private Slack board. What, what, what do you say to that? So this was actually in a war room where policymakers were making decisions about content. And there was follow-up action made to these, uh, to these posts. What sort of actions do they take on Shapiro content that you've seen? So they made an advisory um, document about this type of content. And then this advisory content ended up in our sensitive terms list, which is content that has to be manually entered that then affects all the content that comes into home feed, search, people's recommendations, etc. Okay, so they are limiting what you can get in a search. This is what the New York Times wants from YouTube too. This is what the New York Times wants from Google. This is what the New York Times wants from Pinterest. This is what the Democrats want. What Democrats would like is for all of these various outlets to feel the pressure from the media so strongly that they simply start censoring conservative content. And it's not just me, by the way. According to the Daily Wire, reporting on this Project Veritas report, among the claims presented by the whistleblower is that my content was censored in a zero-tolerance movement. Terms related to Christianity are blocked from autocomplete. A video series exposing Planned Parenthood was included in a censor list as a harmful conspiracy. And liveaction.org was included on a list of porn sites blocked by the platform, meaning no links to its content could be produced by users. And then you've got the CEO of Google, who's openly coming out and saying, listen, we are trying to determine what exactly hate speech is. It's ama what's amazing here, truly, is to watch as members of the media, this is Axios, on HBO, right? Both supposed free speech content. HBO used to be the place that was totally free speech. HBO was not cable, so you could curse. HBO was the place where you could see full frontal nudity because no censorship. We hate censorship. Well, now Axios on HBO is interviewing the head of Google and trying to get the guy to basically establish hate speech standards that will be used by Google to shut down particular content. There is no good definition of hate speech. That definition simply does not exist. And the danger in trying to define hate speech in any real way is that folks on the left are likely to label anything from the right hate speech as that New York Times piece ex exposed you to, showed you. Here is the CEO of Google, though, trying to suggest that he's going to somehow implement a standard for hate speech that does not exist under American law, nor should it exist under American law. More recently, we have introduced, you know, just like today, we do this in search. We, you know, we rank content based on quality. And so we're bringing that same notion and approach to YouTube so that we can rank higher quality stuff better and really prevent uh, borderline content, content which doesn't exactly violate policies which need to be removed, but which can still cause harm. And so we are working hard. It's a hard computer science problem. It's also a hard societal problem because we need better frameworks around what is hate speech, what's not, and how do we as a company make those decisions at scale and get it right without making mistakes. Okay, well, you're not getting it right and you will make mistakes. I mean, this was shown last week with YouTube banning actual historical coverage of the Nazis because YouTube's algorithm couldn't determine what was historical coverage of Nazis and what was neo-Nazi content. Some of the most disturbing stuff there is when they say, well, you know, we're going to get rid of borderline content or we're going to limit borderline content. So explain to me how the Daily Wire, for example, should be treated as borderline content, while Huffington Post should be treated as non-borderline content. You're going to have to explain that one to me. And if you believe that Google and YouTube and Facebook aren't going to elevate left-wing sources above right-wing sources, you're out of your mind. Of course they are. When they talk about the authoritative sources that they like, those authoritative sources are, in fact, the mainstream media outlets that are currently pushing for the limitations. What they're looking for, in effect, is a crony capitalism that, that, is, that is effectively a business type of collusion. It's actually much closer to mon monopolistic interference than it is to free markets or free minds. Because what's happening here is that the New York Times, CNN, a lot of left-wing outlets are looking at the future of the internet, and they're concerned 
And rightly so. They're concerned that the market is dissipating their influence. And so what they're doing is they're going to the tech companies and they're saying, listen, we are going to attack you incessantly. We're going to attack you incessantly as, as creating violence. We're going to attack you incessantly as radicalizing people. We're going to attack you repeatedly, continuously. We're going to do this all the time until you elevate our content and, de and deplatform and de-elevate content that we don't like. Now, even if I agree with a lot of the content being banned, meaning that I agree that some of that content is gross, I don't think that it should be banned. The reason is because I don't trust these companies to make those sorts of decisions. I trust the American people to make these decisions. And it is astonishing to watch media outlets that purportedly worry about Donald Trump cracking down on freedom of the press, spending front page space and time on HBO trying to condemn tech platforms for being open fora. It really is an amazing thing. And the, there are only a couple reasons to do it. One is ideological and one is market-based. The ideological reason is because they don't like that there are views that they don't like that are gaining credence. And the, and the market-based reason is that there are all of these other outlets that are gaining all sorts of credibility and credence and money and making lots of money. And they are afraid that their influence is dissipating. So they are creating a false monopoly again with the help of the tech companies. They are going to restore the media monopoly that existed back in the 1980s and the 1970s by using the tech bros to shut down everybody else. That's what's going on here. Okay, in just a second, I want to get to the, the Trump tariff plan. How has that actually created immigration policy? Was it a win or a lose for President Trump? What actually happened there? Because it seems like there's a lot of confusion still. First, no one really has time to go to the post office. You're busy. I'm busy. You know, I, I like the post office, but the fact is last time I went there, I got a massive parking ticket because you just don't have time. You park anywhere near the red zone, they give you a ticket. And meanwhile, you're inside lugging all your mail and your packages and you're spending an hour there. It's a hassle. That's why you need Stamps.com. It's one of the most popular time-saving tools for small businesses. Stamps.com eliminates trips to the post office and saves you money with discounts you can't even get at the post office. Stamps.com brings all the amazing services of the U.S. post office direct to your computer. Whether you're a small office sending invoices, an online seller shipping out products, even a warehouse sending thousands of packages a day, Stamps.com can handle it all with ease. Simply use your computer to print official U.S. postage 24-7 for any letter, any package, any class of mail, anywhere you want to send it. Once that mail is ready, just hand it to your mail carrier or drop it in a mailbox. It is that simple. With stamps.com, you get five cents off every first class stamp and up to 40% off priority mail. Not to mention, it's a fraction of the cost of those expensive postage meters. Stamps.com is a no-brainer. It saves you time and it saves you money. It's no wonder over 700,000 small businesses already use stamps.com. Right now, my listeners get a special offer. It includes a four-week trial plus free postage and digital scale with no long-term commitment. Just go to stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, type in promo code Shapiro. That is stamps.com. Enter Shapiro. There's a reason we use it here at the Daily Wire offices. It saves me time. It saves me money in my own life. It saves our company time and money as well. Now it can save you time and money. Stamps.com. Click that mic at the top of the homepage. Type in Shapiro. Okay, so we're going to get to President Trump and his tariffs and Mexico trying to crack down on immigration in just one second. First, you're going to have to go over to dailywire.com and subscribe. For $9.99 a month, you can, you can subscribe. Now, as I've been discussing for weeks, this is not just an appeal because we have great content that you can only get if you're a subscriber. You know, the additional two hours of my show, the Andrew Clavin show and the Matt Walsh show, and if you want it, the Michael Knowles show. Not only do you get all of those things, and not only if you subscribe annually do you get the Leftist Tears Hot or Cold Tumblr, which is indeed magnificent, not only do you get all of those wondrous things, you actually get to support the principle of free speech in America. Now, listen, YouTube's a private company. They can do what they want. Google is a private company. They can do what they want. But what they are moving toward is the censorship and curbing of your ability to access the programs that you love. And the best way for you to support us and ensure that our message is still going to reach people is to subscribe to help support our show. The fact is, the left is hell-bent on destroying the market for any conservative show, N not only by depriving us of access on their platforms, as you see from this Pinterest story, not only by doing that sort of stuff, but also by going after our advertisers. We have wonderful advertisers on the program. What the left does is targets those advertisers and then tries to drive them off the program, trying to drive down our ability to make a profit and to pay our workers so that we can't produce our show anymore. They've tried to do this with Laura Ingram and Tucker Carlson and Sean Hannity. They do it all the time. The best way to avoid that, please go subscribe over at dailywire.com. Become part of the team. And it really is being part of the team. You are helping out the team. If you want conservative messages to be promulgated. If you want young people to hear those messages, you should go and subscribe right now. If you want to be able to get that content, you should sub subscribe right now. Go check us out. We are the largest, fastest growing conservative podcast and radio show in the nation. Alrighty, so now the latest on President Trump and his tariff push on Mexico. So late last week, I gave credit on the show to President Trump because there were a bunch of reports that President Trump was going to be able to leverage 
a, a significant concession from the Mexican government. That significant concession was a safe third country provision. So the United States has what's called a safe third country deal with the Canadian government. What that safe third country deal does, it says that if somebody is trying to escape a, a human rights abusing country and they want to get out and they go to Canada, they have to apply for asylum in Canada. The first country that they leave, the first country that they reach rather, is the country where they have to apply for asylum. So you can't go to Canada and then apply to asylum in the United States because then it really is more just you want to come to the United States. It really isn't about you applying for asylum. We have a safe third country provision with Canada. Well, we'd like one of those with Mexico. And there was talk last week, late last week, like Thursday night, that the Mexican government was going to give us one. That finally, we were going to get a deal with Mexico where if people entered Mexico from Guatemala or El Salvador, that people would first have to apply for asylum in Mexico before they could apply to enter the United States. And President Trump's tariffs were given credit for that. And President Trump came online on Friday and he said that the tariffs would not go into effect because he'd made some sort of deal with Mexico. So we have a bunch of conflicting reports on this. What exactly the Mexican government gave up? Did they give up anything? Did they make concessions six months ago? And then basically Trump's people sold that to him as new concessions to avoid the tariffs. All of this is eminently unclear. So the Washington Post has a piece today called How Mexico Talked Trump Out of Tariff Threat with Immigration Crackdown Pact. It says Mexican negotiators persuaded President Trump to back down from his tariff threat by agreeing to an unprecedented crackdown on Central American migrants and accepting more expansive measures in Mexico if the initial efforts don't deliver quick results, according to officials from both governments and documents reviewed by the Washington Post. The enforcement measures Mexico has promised include the deployment of a militarized National Guard at the Guatemalan border, thousands of additional migrant arrests per week, and the acceptance of busloads of asylum seekers turned away from the United States border daily, all geared toward cutting the migrant flow sharply in coming weeks. The measures described by officials from both sides and included in Mexican negotiating documents reviewed by the Post appear to be more substantial than what the Mexican government has attempted thus far during the precipitous rise in migration to the United States border. Since heralding the pact in a Friday night tweet, Trump has fumed at criticism that he capitulated to Mexico and that his accord amounts to a series of previously agreed to measures. Trump officials on Monday described the accord as a breakthrough. The president considered Mexico's plan aggressive enough to suspend his tariff threat, even though he liked the idea of imposing the duties over the howls from members of his own party. U.S. officials say they were particularly impressed with Mexico's pledge to deploy up to 6,000 National Guard troops to its border region with Guatemala. Mexico described its plan to U.S. officials as the first time in recent history that Mexico has decided to take operational control of its southern border as a priority, according to Mexican government documents. Such language amounted to the kind of rhetorical shift Trump officials were looking for from the leftist government of President Andres Manuel López Obrador, who last year dismissed migrant enforcement in Mexico as dirty work at the behest of the United States. Trump said Monday his deal with Mexico was fully signed and documented and has provisions that have not yet been fully disclosed. On Monday afternoon at the White House, Trump said that the agreement has been locked in and will be announced very soon. Most asylum seekers who reached the U.S. are now processed and released into the United States interior. Mexico has repeatedly said it will not agree to a safe third country accord that would require it to take in U.S.-bound asylum seekers transiting its, transiting its territory. But Mexican officials have been willing to negotiate something that would function similarly if responsibility for asylum seekers were shared among others in the region. They say asylum changes would require approval from the Mexican lawmakers. Trump said in a tweet Monday he will impose tariffs if the regional asylum overhaul does not pass. So it is not clear at this point what exactly is in place and what exactly is not in place. However, if a safe third country provision ends up being enforced and it was done so because President Trump threatened tariffs, then good for President Trump. My fear was that President Trump simply wanted to use tariffs on Mexico because he likes tariffs, not because he actually hoped to achieve an immigration breakthrough. If he achieves the immigration breakthrough, well, then he gets credit, and I was 100% wrong, and I am more than happy to admit it. I like being wrong when it's good for the country. However, there is a, a major controversy. There are mixed messages being sent. The New York Times reports, the Mexican foreign minister said on Monday that no secret immigration deal existed between his country and the United States, directly contradicting President Trump's claim on Twitter that a fully signed and documented agreement would soon be revealed. In a second, I'll explain how this controversy is continuing to unfold. Marcelo Abrard, Mexico's top diplomat, said at a news conference in Mexico City, there was an understanding that both sides would evaluate the flow of migrants in the coming months. If the number of migrants crossing the U.S. border is not significantly reduced, he said, both sides have agreed to renew discussions about more aggressive changes to regional asylum rules that could have a bigger impact. Abrard said, let's have a deadline to see what, if what we have works. If not, we'll sit down, look at the measures you propose and that we propose. 
The public statement served as an official response to several days of tweeting by Mr. Trump, who has reacted angrily to the suggestion that he withdrew his threats of tariffs on all Mexican goods in exchange for a weak deal on immigration. Now, as I say, I don't want these tariffs to go into effect. They are very bad for the economy. They're very bad for Trump, by the way. If the economy tanks, he has no shot at re-election. I think that the tariffs generally are a bad idea. If, however, the tariffs were useful in leveraging a good immigration deal out of the Mexican government, good. But now the Mexican government seems to be waffling. So it is unclear at this point what, if anything, has been signed. There's been no public, no public documentation put forth at this point. There was a U.S.-Mexico joint declaration that Trump announced with fanfare on Friday. It mentioned further public action. It said that the countries agreed to continue their discussion on the terms of additional understandings to address irregular migrant flows and asylum issues to be completed and announced within 90 days. American officials said on Monday, Trump appeared to be referring to an agreement in principle to revisit the migration situation in 45 days and again in 90 days. There was apparently significant disagreement on Monday between the Mexican government and American officials about what the negotiators actually agreed to regarding further action. So, as I said, I will, when, when President Trump achieves an actual victory here that is documentable, I will give him 100% credit. As it stands, this looks a lot like when President Trump was in North Korea and President Trump was suggesting over and over again that he had reached some sort of breakthrough with Kim Jong-un that turned out not to be true. So I think that we can trust but verify. So, sure, happy to give President Trump credit on a breakthrough. Now we'll have to verify. Do the migrations go down? Is a safe third country provision in the works? Will any of this stuff actually happen? Trump didn't specifically mention the safe third country provision on Monday, but he said they would have an agreement they would announce very soon. It's all done. That is not what was described by the foreign minister for Mexico. Ebrard said they will propose a safe third country. We said it will have to be with the UN Human Rights Council and it will have to be regional. He said Mexico preferred a regional asylum agreement that would review the flow of migrants across Mexico and Central America with a number of countries, including Panama and Brazil. So I think this whole thing is still in flux is the bottom line. Now, the good news is that President Trump can snap back those tariffs pretty much any time he wants. So there's a pretty strong incentive for the Mexican government not exactly to screw around with President Trump. But maybe if they apply a delay tactic, maybe if they delay this thing all the way until next year, they hope that a Democrat will be elected, at which point open immigration begins again. I will say that President Trump's strategic use of tariffs with regard to China has not been the has not been exactly the, the serious problem that I think everyone thought that it was going to be. Now, it has been a serious problem in terms of the economy. The economy is more brittle. Growth is slowing. All of that is true. But the amount of Chinese leverage that they are willing to apply at this point does not appear to be all that high. Right? China does have more to lose than the United States. And as I've said before, there is a case to be made that the Chinese government ought to be pressured in a way the Mexican government is not pressured. Now, the Mexican government should be pressured to stop the migrant flow, but the Mexican government is not an open adversary of the United States. China really is. And the good news is that China's attempts at leveraging the United States are so far a giant fail. There's an article in the Washington Post talking about how China's hints that it will choke off rare earths access in the United States is not, in fact, that easy. David Lynch writing for the Washington Post. He says, China dominates the global market for rare earths materials and has been threatening to take them hostage in the deepening trade conflict. Just the suggestion that Beijing could starve American factories of essential materials has sent rare earth prices soaring over the past month with dysprosium oxide used in lasers and nuclear reactor control rods up by one third. But the alarm overlooks the rise over the past decade of alternative sources of rare earths and ignores the difficulties China would face in implementing a ban, including the prospect of widespread smuggling and the likelihood of hurting countries that Chinese authorities may prefer not to alienate. So President Trump has been applying leverage to China and he is right to do so. We'll see how the Mexican negotiation, which I'm more skeptical of, plays out. Again, I'm hoping that the president's strategy there pays off and that we see some real gains here. I, I will say that, that the media, obviously, uh, the media, obviously, are jumping to the conclusion that Trump has got nothing in exchange for backing down from his tariff threats. You have Anderson Cooper, the very objective journalist on CNN, not waiting to see, but instead jumping in and saying that this was all about nothing. Their story says, and I'm quoting now the lead, the deal to avert tariffs that President Trump announced with great fanfare on Friday night consists largely of actions that Mexico had already promised to take in prior discussions with the U.S. over the past several months, according to officials from both countries who are familiar with the negotiations. In other words, whatever might be coming down the pike when it comes to what has already transpired, all the drama, all the talks, all the threats of what amounts to waging economic warfare on a major trading partner and ally, 
were all about nothing. Okay, well, maybe they were and maybe they weren't. We don't know yet is sort of the issue. So I think that Trump's adversaries are going to declare that this is a big loss for Trump. But honestly, where's the big loss for Trump exactly? So he threatened tariffs. The tariffs didn't go into place. That seems like a win for U.S. citizens. I mean, tariffs are a tax on us. And maybe he gets something out of this. Maybe he doesn't. We will find out soon enough. But everybody's sort of jumping to a conclusion, I think, is, is doing just that, jumping to a conclusion. Well, meanwhile, the Democrats hosted John Dean on Capitol Hill yesterday. This is an absurdity. It is an absurdity. So Democrats decided they would host John Dean, who is a partisan hack, on Capitol Hill. And it didn't go great for him. Basically, he's a, he has suggested that every Republican president since Richard Nixon is, in fact, Richard Nixon, who's the former White House counsel to President Nixon, who's involved in Watergate. And he suggested that President Trump is not mentally well and mentally fit to serve. Here is him suggesting that Trump can't be president. The last time I appeared before your committee was July 11, 1974, during the impeachment inquiry of Richard Nixon. Clearly, I'm not here today as a fact witness. I accepted the invitation to come here today because I hope I can give a little historical perspective on the Mueller report. In many ways, the Mueller report is to President Trump what the so-called Watergate roadmap was to President Richard Nixon. Stated a little differently, Special Counsel Mueller has provided this committee with a roadmap. Okay, really? You can tell the Democrats are desperate when they're calling in John Dean. If you call in John Dean, the guy from 1974, who called President Bush a Watergate-style president, if you're inviting that guy, and that's the best you can do, I would recommend that you guys get some better candidates because if you're relying on John Dean to take down the president, you may be in serious trouble. Okay, time for some things I like and then some things that I hate. So things that I like over the weekend, read a terrific book by Alan Greenspan called Capitalism in America, a History Along with Adrian Woolridge. It is a really readable, easy history of the economics of the United States. It talks about the U.S.'s free market economy. It talks about how FDR changed that free market economy. It talks about the relative growth rates in the U.S. economy over time. It talks about everything from free trade to monetary policy, and it is very readable, okay? It is not a hard book to read, so go check it out. Capitalism in America by Alan Greenspan, uh, who's a, a devotee of, of Milton Friedman, among others. So apparently, apparently, was Mil I've been told by the New York Times Milton Friedman was basically an alt-writer, but Alan Greenspan was one, of his, was one of his acolytes and, of course, ran the Fed. Check it out. Capitalism in America by Alan Greenspan and Adrian Woolrich. Definitely worth the watch. Okay, other things that... I like today. So let's see. Okay, well, let's, you know what? Let's get to a bunch of things that I hate because there's a lot to hate today. So let's do it. Well, I, I, I will say that I sort of like and hate this. Feminist Sophie Lewis is now admitting that abortion is a killing. She just said it's the sort of killing that we like, which at least is deathly honest. I mean, that's good. I, I wonder if she will be censored on Pinterest the same way that Lila Rose and Live Action have been. Here she is explaining that Abortion is a form of killing, but it's a good form of killing. You know, like the kind of killing of like people that we don't like, that kind of killing. Abortion is, in my opinion, um, and I recognize how controversial this is, um, a form of killing. It is a, a form of um, killing that uh, we need to be able to defend. Um, I am not interested in where a human life starts to um, exist. Um, I see the forms of making and unmaking each other as sort of continuous processes. Um, okay. I see the forms of making and unmaking each other as a continuous process. That seems like that's a, that's pretty much what Jack the Ripper had to say about prostitutes right there. The forms of making and unmaking each other. It's a continuous process. You know, when I gut this prostitute over here, that's pretty much, I am just unmaking her, right? I mean, we're all making and unmaking each other all the time, aren't we? I mean, really, is that such a big deal? I just unmade her intestines. I mean, that's like, but they're making themselves and you're making them and I make, I mean, like, okay. Well, at least she's honest. Points for honesty to abortion lady. It's a form of killing she likes. That is a case that I can at least understand. So well done there. That's good stuff. Okay. Other things that I hate today. So there are two pieces, one from the New York Times and one from the Washington Post. One is from a kind of conservative, Henry Olson, and one is from a person named Aaron Bastani. This one I particularly like from Aaron Bastani. The title of the piece from the New York Times, The World is a Mess. We Need Fully Automated Luxury Communism. Hmm. Now, I'm puzzled by the title. I will, I will fully acknowledge I find this puzzling because those words 
do not make sense. That is, that is like saying what we truly need is a red, blue, green, blue grass. Don't know what it means. That's a sentence, technically a sentence, not words that make sense in order. We need a fully automated luxury communism. We need a communism. Thank you, Aaron Bastani. So what exactly does this stupid article say? It says, it starts with a burger. In 2008, a Dutch professor named Mark Post presented the proof of concept for what he called cultured meat. Five years later, in a London TV studio, Mr. Post and his colleagues ate a burger they had grown from animal cells in a laboratory. Secretly funded by Sergey Brin, a co-founder of Google, the journey from Petri dish to plate had cost $325,000, making theirs the most expensive meal in history. Fortunately, the results were promising. Hani Rutzler, a nutrition scientist, concluded the patty was close to meat, but not, not as juicy. The next question was whether this breakthrough could be made cheaper, much cheaper. The first cultured beef burgers are likely to enter the market next year at approximately 50 bucks each, but that won't last long. Within a decade, they will probably be more affordable than even the cheapest barbecue staples of today, all for a product that uses fewer resources, produces negligible greenhouse gases, and remarkably requires no animals to die. So far, this is a pretty stirring representation of how awesome capitalism is, isn't it? And they're talking about how private funding created a burger that will be cheaper than regular burgers and also have many of the, and and avoid many of the side effects of burgers. So it's a pretty good case for capitalism. But remember, this is an article about communism. Wait, it's not just barbecues and burgers. Last year, Just, a leader in cellular agriculture, cut a deal to start producing one of the world's tastiest steaks, Wagyu. A company called Endless West, which also makes grapeless wine, has started to produce Glyph, the world's first molecular whiskey. Luxury could be coming to all. The case of cultured food and drink, far from a curiosity, is a template for a better, freer, and more affluent world, a world where we provide for the needs of everyone in style. But how do we get there? To say that, well, I mean, I think that we just explained how we got there, didn't we? I mean, weren't the first few paragraphs all about how all these private companies are creating awesome new stuff that will become insanely cheap because of the free market? So I think you sort of answered it. We could just stop the article there, but no, we still got 600 words to fill. So according to this genius columnist, Aaron Bastani, so he says, how do we get there? To say the present era is one of crisis borders on cliche. It differs from the dystopias of George Orwell or Aldous Huxley or hell in the paintings of Hieronymus Bosch. It is unlike Europe during the Black Death or Central Asia as it faced the galloping Golden Horde. And yet it is true. Ours is an age of crisis. I swear, this was written by a high school junior getting a C. I, like, to say it, it differs from other dystopias. And then let me show you how many books I've read, all from my high school English class. George or- Orwell and Aldous Huxley. Also, I've heard of the Black Death guys. He says, we inhabit a world of low growth, low productivity, and low wages. Um, well, not low wages. Okay, that, that is not true. Low productivity, historically speaking, and not even close to true. Low growth is kind of true, and that's mostly because of government interventionism. This is a world where billions, mostly in the global south, live in poverty, a world defined by inequality. Actually, the world is defined by a massive reduction in the amount of inequality between the poorest and everybody else, considering that 80% of the global extreme poor have been lifted out of global extreme poverty since 1980 by capitalism. But remember, this is an article about communism. The most pressing crisis of all, arguably, is an absence of collective imagination. Yes, that is arguable. That is an, that is an arguable contention, that the biggest crisis is an absence of collective imagination. If I were going to go with, like, biggest, cri- uh, biggest crisis, I would say, let's see, collapse of traditional morality might be up there, uh, probably the crisis in Syria, the slaughter of hundreds of thousands of people, I'd say maybe disease and poverty in Africa. There are a few failure of collective imagination. Whenever people talk about collective imagination, understand what they really mean by collective imagination is one person at the head of a massive government who imposes their ideas on everybody else. Because you know what is the collective imagination, the free market? That is the collective imagination. It's all of our individual imaginations, but in a market. Collective imagination is where there's somebody at the top bossing people around. The term collective imagination, in fact, is somewhat self-defeating. Because imagination is by nature individual. Now, we can work in groups and toss ideas back and forth to each other. But the idea of a collective imagination, a hive mind, so to speak, the reason that a hive mind doesn't really work that way is because a hive is subservient to the queen bee. But this columnist says, it is as if humanity has been afflicted by a psychological complex in which we believe the present world is stronger than our capacity to remake it. As if the very essence of humanity, if there is such a thing, is not to constantly build new worlds. This is, this is such bad writing. My goodness. If we can move beyond such a failure, we will be able to see something wonderful. The plummeting cost of information and advances in technology are providing the ground 
for a collective future of freedom and luxury for all. Automation, robotics, and machine learning will, as many august bodies from Bank of England to the White House have predicted, substantially shrink the workforce, creating widespread technological unemployment. But that's only a problem if you think work is something to be cherished. For many, work is drudgery, and automation could set us free from it. Okay, well, for many it's not, so that's a problem. But also, you're going to have to give people something to do. And it turns out that communism doesn't give anything for people to do. They sit there and they take things. Gene editing, this is, this is one of the funny things about people who, who promote socialism and communism. There's this weird idea that if you promote socialism, you promote communism, that what will spring free is a bunch of itinerant poets who sit around writing about the beautiful flowers and creating a world of art. I remember that Nancy Pelosi said this about so-called job lock, right? She said that people were locked into their jobs for healthcare, and that was a bad thing. We needed to disconnect healthcare from your job by presumably nationalizing it so that you could write poetry. Now, I know a lot of people without jobs, very few of them, except for producer Nick here, actually sit around writing poetry or going and learning to mine for gold. Right? Very few of them. Most people who are unemployed are pretty depressed and pretty unhappy because they don't have a lot of stuff to do. But this article continues by talking about how as we make things more and more prosperous, well, now we can try communism. He says, I love this. He says, the consequences are far-reaching and potentially transformative of the, of the increasing technological technological achievements of man. For the crises that confront our world today, technological unemployment, global poverty, societal aging, climate change, resource scarcity, we can already glimpse the remedy. But there's a catch. It's called capitalism. It, it has created the newly emerging abundance, but it is unable to share around the fruits of technological development. Okay, if, if you really believe that capitalism has been unable to share around the fruits of technological development, I ask you how many people in the United States have cell phones? I ask you how many people in the United States have microwaves and cars? Everybody takes this stuff for granted because of capitalism. Communism creates nothing. Communism redistributes what is there until it kills off the, golden, the, the goose that creates the golden eggs. He says, a system where things are produced only for profit, capitalism seeks to ration resources to ensure returns. No, that's not how capitalism works. Okay, capitalism works through competition. Free markets work through competition. Just like today's, Companies of the futures will form monopolies and seek rents. The results will be imposed scarcity when there's not enough food, healthcare, or energy to go around. Okay, this has not been the history of capitalism. The only enforced monopolies are ones that are enforced by the government. Government monopolies are monopolies too and result in far more scarcity than free market economics. But according to this columnist, we have to go beyond capitalism. Many will find this suggestion unwholesome. To them, the claim that capitalism will or should end is like saying a triangle doesn't have three sides or that the law of gravity no longer applies while an apple falls from a tree. But for a better world, it is an imperative. We can see the contours of something new, a society as distinct from our own as that of 20th century from feudalism or urban civilization from the life of the hunter-gatherer. It builds on technologies whose development has been accelerating for decades. To grasp it will require a new politics, fully automated luxury communism. What the hell does that even mean? So we've gone through the entire article. I still don't understand what fully automated luxury communism means. It doesn't mean anything. All it means is that capitalism is awesome, but you like communism, so you're going to say communism over and over. Well done, New York Times. My goodness, if your case for communism is basically that technology is going to solve all of our problems, you just made the unwitting case for capitalism. Thank you very much. Now, on the right, you're seeing some folks who are making an unwitting case against capitalism or a witting case. One of those people is Henry Olson. So Henry Olson is a really interesting commentator. He comes from sort of the Tucker Carlson conservative school of thought that suggests that free markets are the problem. He had a piece in the Washington Post called Conservative Elites Love to Defend Market Orthodoxy. Don't fall for it. Well, I love that everybody who disagrees with Henry Olson is now an elite. You know, it, it, like, I believe that just in terms of probably income and education, it's fair to say I'm an elite. In terms of my opinion on politics, I am not an elitist. I've always made this distinction. I've never understood this, this sort of connection between quote-unquote elites and elitists. Right? Ronald Reagan was an elite. He was not an elitist. Donald Trump is an elite. He is not an elitist. An elitist is somebody who believes they should run the world for everybody else. That is the opposite of free market libertarianism, which suggests that you should make your own choices without the government cramming down choices and subsidies upon you. Anyway, Henry Olson says, there's been a debate brewing within the world of conservatism ever since Donald Trump won the GOP nomination. Some on the right bitterly oppose his divergence from Republican economic orthodoxy and are fighting to defend the role of economic markets in society against what they perceive as attacks from other conservatives. These elites may be right to be afraid, but that's because at heart, they are more libertarian than they are conservative. Well, I think you and I are defining conservative differently then because it turns out that conservative is about conserving the liberties guaranteed by the Constitution of the United States 
Many of those liberties are tied into the free market. Such libertarian-minded opinion leaders have criticized Trump's call to rule out reform for Social Security and Medicare. They ignored his calls to dramatically increase spending on infrastructure. They savaged his views on trade. Trump's overwhelming victory in the primaries should have shocked them out of their ideological slumber. Instead, they're like the French Bourbon monarchs, who upon being restored to the throne, remembered nothing and forgot nothing about the reasons they were overthrown in the first place. Okay, Donald Trump, and then, and then he name checks me, right? He suggests that Fox News television host Tucker Carlson's rather mundane point that today's global economy contributes in part to the economic and social decline in many parts of the United States was scorned by leading lights such as David French and Ben Shapiro. Right, we talked about it on the show. Because my point was that the moral failings of the United States are far more linked to the moral history of the United States in the 1960s than they are to the fact that you can get a cheaper product from China. Like, I don't think people are failing to get married because we signed NAFTA. I think people are failing to get married because our society has disdained marriage for generations. The marriage rates started to decline far before the effects of so-called kind of trade imbalances began to be felt. I mean, marriage rates in the United States started to decline in the 60s when the economy was still pretty good. Now, what's hilarious, and by the way, the economy is still pretty good. I mean, we have an all-time low unemployment rate right now. But according to Henry Olson, here's, here's where we get to the point. When I say that the left is pushing for communism, but they're really in favor of capitalism, like that article from the New York Times, and then you have people on the right who are pushing for government involvement in the name of conservatism, that's Henry Olson. This is fascinating. He says this, my libertarian-oriented friends will not want to hear this, but we live in the garden that Franklin Delano Roosevelt made. Now, this should be anathema to conservatives. If somebody comes to you and they say, you know, we just have to accept the new form of government that FDR brought about. FDR was about as close to a socialist dictator in the United States as we had, except for maybe Woodrow Wilson, as we've had in the United States. He wasn't able to get all of his plans through, but the, the National Recovery Act was a fascist piece of legislation in which the government overtly gave a stamp of approval to particular businesses that abided by the government's diktats. FDR's muddling with the economy lengthened the Great Depression by eight years, minimum. FDR led to the second great, there were two great depressions, basically. There was one that was from 29 to 33, and then there was one that kicked in again from 37 to basically World War II. FDR's economic policy was disastrous, and he created all of the economic unsustainability that we have seen. He created the, the roots of the union system that destroyed America's car industry. He created the, the roots of the social security system that is bankrupting us in the future, and Medicaid and Medicare. Systems that are comprise now 66% of the federal budget. So when you hear a conservative say something like, we live in the garden that FDR made, the conservative task is to prune that garden so that the tree of liberty can coexist within its plan and perhaps take up an ever larger part. That, I mean, that's an amazing, amazing statement. If you're a conservative and you believe that your role is basically to conserve FDR, I don't think that's particularly conservative. You can make the argument that that's what should be done on a practical policy level because you can't get through a more libertarian program. That I understand. But if your argument is that FDR's basic economic structure in which he derided malefactors of great wealth, regulated the banking industry, debased the currency, and did all sorts of other things to undermine the fundamental free market nature of America's economy, that that was a good thing and that we have to maintain that? I don't know how that, that strikes a chord with anybody who believes in the Constitution of the United States or the economic philosophy that created the, gra the great majority of America's wealth. Alrighty, well, that was a lot. But we will be back here tomorrow or later today if you want two more hours of content. You're listening to The Ben Shapiro Show. The Ben Shapiro Show is produced by Robert Sterling, directed by Mike Joyner, executive producer, Jeremy Boring, senior producer, Jonathan Hay. Our supervising producer is Mathis Glover, and our technical producer is Austin Stevens, edited by Adam Saievitz. Audio is mixed by Mike Coromina. Hair and makeup is by Jesua Olvera. Production assistant, Nick Sheehan. The Ben Shapiro Show is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2019. President Trump wins big on his deal with Mexico. Of course, the mainstream media don't give him credit for it. We will examine what is really in the deal. Then, another social media platform bans conservatives and Masterpiece Cake Shop owner Jack Phillips gets sued for a third time by radical leftists. All that and more at The Michael Knowles Show. We'll get to more on this in just one second first. Pure Talk believes in American values and that free 
should mean, you know, like free. So when you switch to Pure Talk today, you'll get a free Samsung 5G smartphone. There's no four-line requirement, no activation fee, just a free Samsung that's built to last with a rugged screen, quick charging battery, and top-tier data security. Qualifying plans start at just 35 bucks a month for unlimited talk, text, 15 gigs of data, and a mobile hotspot. Pure Talk gives you phenomenal coverage on America's most dependable 5G network. It's the same coverage you know and love, but for half the price of the other guys. The average family saves almost $1,000 a year. So, I challenge you to choose a company that actually doesn't hate your guts and shares your values. Let Pure Talk's expert U.S. customer service team help you make the switch today. Go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro to claim your eligibility for your free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone and start saving on wireless today. Again, go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro to switch to my cell phone company. I've been using them for years. They're fantastic. You'll love them as well. Go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro and claim your eligibility on that free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone. Start saving. 